We have just come out of uh, Easter season, Palm Sunday and Easter, and these are up times for us typically. Emotionally, expectations are a little higher. We're changing gears dramatically this morning. Uh, if you tell people that you are going to teach on uh, theology or doctrine, you know, the yawns start right away, and people just turn you off, you know, immediately, uh, almost certainly. Uh, but think of it like this. Uh, doctrine just means a teaching, just means a teaching about something. So all of us have doctrines, that is, we believe certain things about certain things. Uh, theology, you know, is just the study of God. This shouldn't be a boring thing. He's the source of all life and light. He's excitement, you know, from the beginning. So theology shouldn't be boring either, but it's teaching. Doctrine is a teaching. Theology is a study of God. And that's actually, we're diving in just a little bit this morning into theology or doctrine about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit shouldn't be boring either, right? Because he's the source of any of our experience of God or life in any spiritual sense always is through or by the Holy Spirit. So even though we're talking about theology and doctrine related to the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, hopefully this doesn't come across as boring. Um, I typically find this... um, Our doctrine actually defines the way we perceive life and then that defines the way we experience or interact with life. When you talk to people about this, um, Christian or otherwise, everyone actually has a grid, a, a worldview by which they view the world and interpret the world and, and interact with the world around them. They all have a worldview. Um, they may not know what it is. They may not have articulated it, but they have it. So if someone, uh, let's just say they're the eat, drink, and be merry variety of person, and there's plenty of those around, and I was one of those, um, you have a worldview that says, hey, I I don't know about what's coming, but I know what's here right now, and and my my goal in life, my theology, is to have a good time. It's the party life. Well, that's a a worldview. That's a, uh, widely, broadly speaking, that's a theology. It's a doctrine. It's a way of looking at life. The downside of not thinking about theology or doctrines is that you live life ignorantly in the dark. I think it was Plato who said the unexamined life is not worth living. And we don't want to live unexamined lives. We don't want to live lives in ignorance or spiritual or even intellectual darkness. We want to live informed lives. I would argue that those Christians particularly who have the best grasp of doctrine, that is what the Bible teaches about any one of a number of things. Uh, theologically, you know, we talk about this morning pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, but there's studies, there's doctrines the Bible teaches about all kinds of things, sin, the Trinity, the Son, the future. We've got names for all of these. And if you pick up a big textbook and you say, I'm going to study doctrine, it might seem overwhelming or boring, But the truth is, this is the meat and potatoes of spiritual life. Doctrine is. Doctrine is. Paul talks about in the epistles about not letting people take you captive through their teachings. That is, if you don't know what the Bible teaches about uh, 
your freedom in Christ or about the law versus grace, living life under a law or living life under grace, God's grace, uh, it affects the way you live. You'll believe wrong things and you'll act on wrong things and live life poorly. And Jesus says in John 10 that he's come so that we can experience life and experience it abundantly. And believe it or not, abundant life is tied to doctrine and theology. And the better we get a grasp of the important or at least the basic doctrines of the Bible, the better we live and experience life. So we're jumping in. This will actually be two weeks on the Holy Spirit. This morning will be fairly brief and kind of a broad overview. We're doing this because I felt, frankly, that it was too important to leave John 7 without saying something about the Holy Spirit. Let me jump off our springboard out of John 7 as we get into this this morning. If you remember, just before Palm Sunday, we were in John 7, and we were in verses 37 through 39. And this is what Jesus said quite dramatically, if you remember. He's in the temple precinct, and this grand ceremony has been taking place, and Jesus breaks the ritual silence in this one moment, and this guy in the peanut gallery yells out, in the midst of this solemn occasion, this feast of ingatherings or tabernacles, he says, he yells, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then verse 39, which is where we're taking off from this morning. John said, John the Apostle, as he wrote this later, he tells us this, he inserts this, This he, Jesus, spoke of the Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet, or not yet given, your Bible may read, because Jesus was not yet glorified. John, looking back on this, inserts parenthetically, or as an editor, that when Jesus made this crazy claim about if you believe in him, you would be like a fountain with flowing, living water come out, Jesus told, or John told us for Jesus what this meant. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus made this proclamation, the Spirit was not yet or not yet given, he says, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we're going to, this is quite brief, frankly, but we're going to look for two weeks at the Holy Spirit. And week one today is the Spirit doing God's work and then the Spirit in or on people. What, just generally... Verse 39, what does it mean that the Spirit was not yet, or that the Spirit was not yet given? What, what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? What can we say about the Holy Spirit? And then the change that comes that John's talking about here at verse 39. Clearly, when John says the Spirit was not yet, he doesn't mean the Holy Spirit didn't exist. And he doesn't mean that the Spirit wasn't in the world. He can't mean that. Because if we read our Old Testament, we see the Spirit everywhere. Listen to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. You know, we talk about God the Father creating the heavens and the earth, and He did. And we talk about Jesus the Son, John chapter 1, we looked at earlier. Nothing that was created has been created apart from Jesus Christ. The Son created the world, too. But we see in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, that when the Father initiated and the Son spoke, it was the Holy Spirit who was the power of God hovering over the surface of this creation out of nothing that would then be God's power to bring order 
out of this sort of chaotic whole. That is, the material of the universe was created, Genesis 1.1. And then it says, over the surface of this material creation, it was the Holy Spirit who was hovering like a mother, as it were, or as a, I don't know how you want to say this, but as the power or the energy that then would give effect to God's commands. So that when God says, let there be light, it is the power of the Holy Spirit who is bringing light. It's the Holy Spirit who's there at creation, bringing to pass the Father and the Son's will, the Father's will, the Son's word, being affected by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, typically, just related to the Trinity, when you study either Testament, you typically see that, generally speaking, the Father initiates the Trinity's will, so to speak. The Son carries it out through the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the general way that the Trinity interacts. So you see that in creation. And here, in the very beginning of the Bible, the Holy Spirit is here hovering over the creation of the material universe to bring to pass the Trinity's will over this creative process. So, from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit's here. So when John says he's not yet, he doesn't mean he's not around. He doesn't mean that the third person of the Trinity hadn't been created. He just means that he wasn't yet in some way we'll see here in just a little bit. But the Holy Spirit was there at creation bringing to pass the Father and the Son's will over how this thing took place and took shape, the sequence and the order. Now beyond being present in this process of creation... The, the big area you see the Holy Spirit being present in the Old Testament, this, we're talking about a change between the time after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and before, based on John 7, 39, the way you typically see the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament is that he would come upon people. He would come upon people. And that term, upon, is kind of a, a critical term here, as you'll see in just a little bit. Let me read you a, a few verses that talk about this. In Numbers 11, when Moses is having a tough time caring for this big nation in the wilderness, and he's wearing out, and he tells God, I'm having a tough time, and God says, this is what I'll do. I'm going to take the spirit that I've put on you, and I'm going to put that same spirit, the Holy Spirit, on 70 other elders. And so you bring them out to the tent, and I'm going to put my spirit on them. And in Numbers 11:26, two of the 70, they didn't go out. They slept late, or they were a little tired. We don't know. It doesn't say. But Numbers 11:26 reads, Two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, the name of the other Medab. And the spirit rested upon them. And they prophesied in the camp. The spirit rested upon them. God was going to give his spirit as he had to Moses onto these other guys so they'd be key leaders with him. And when it describes what this looked like, it says the spirit rested on them. And then others knew that the spirit had rested on them, whether they could see anything or not, because these guys began prophesying. Now, in the Old Testament, prophesying was a key indication that the spirit was there. And you'll see this in many other people. Just as in the New Testament, at least in the early years of the church, the key indicator that someone had become a Christian was speaking in tongues. It was speaking in a language they hadn't heard. In both Testaments, this evidence of the Spirit's presence on someone was what they spoke. So here were these guys that says the Spirit rested on them and they prophesied. 
in Judges, uh, Judges is a weird, weird book. You know, if you just want to read weird, outlandish stories, read the book of Judges. It's kind of the low point in biblical history and certainly Israel's history. But in the period of Judges, God would listen to Israel's cries for help. They'd been disobedient. They'd done all the things God told them not to do. So he'd let their enemies come in and punish them. And when they got tired of it, they'd call out for help and he'd send them a judge, a deliverer. What a weird assortment of heroes you read about in the book of Judges. These heroes or deliverers, these judges. In Judges 6, Gideon is one of this number. And Gideon, read the story, Gideon's a timid guy. He's hiding when the angel comes and says, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's looking around to see who that angel's talking to. Because he's just hiding so the Philistines don't take his little bit of grain. In fact, he's so timid that even when God's told him what he's going to do, he's not ready and, and God says, and this is a great lesson for us, if you're timid, Gideon's a great, great story for you. Because God just, he helps him time after time and he reassures him. When you talk about putting out a fleece, it's an idiom we use, put out a fleece. That's from Gideon. Gideon said, Lord, I want to make sure I hear you right. So if I'm really hearing you right, please do this. Put dew on the fleece, not on the ground. God does it. God, I'm not sure I heard you. Put dew on the fleece, not on the ground. Anyway, I don't know if I got that right backwards. Still not enough. Okay, Gideon, go down, listen to what this guy says. And, and the enemy has a dream about Gideon, the mighty man of valor. But anyway, Gideon says in Judges 6.34, the spear of the Lord came upon him. He blew a trumpet. The Abiezrites were called together to follow him. This timid, fearful guy, it says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's the only reason Gideon could go out and do the things God called him to do. It was because the Holy Spirit came upon him and gave him power and gave him boldness to do what God wanted done. Without the Holy Spirit's presence on him, Gideon was just a timid guy who was hiding away. Israel's deliverance would never have been accomplished had not this verse been here. The Spirit of God came upon him. Samson, you know, you wonder why God picked some of these judges. What is it with Samson? You know, who would pick Samson? This total, totally unclean, immoral individual. You know, whether or not he's a Nazarite from birth or not. Doing all the wrong things, seeing all the wrong gals, you know breaking the law right and left, the law of God that he was supposed to be living under. But God appoints him as a judge anyway. And we read in Judges 14, 6, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily when this lion is approaching him, so that he tore the lion as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Here's Samson, and you remember the, the guy that he can lift things, he kills people by the thousands with the jawbone of an ass and all this stuff. This guy with supernatural strength. Well, where does he get it? It's not that he's at the gym pumping iron. This is not Samson. He's got it because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. The Spirit came on him and gave him strength and stirred him up to do what God wanted done. By the way, I might say something here. Uh, Related to free will, this has nothing to do with the rest of what I'm saying, but this occurred to me earlier. Related to free will, um, many people believe mistakenly that human beings have what's called free moral will. There's, there's no human on the planet that has in any absolute way what we would call free moral will. 
Every human on the planet has a sin nature that's predisposed to sin. That is not a free moral will. Beyond that, when you read these passages where the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that is God doing something to someone apart from their will. We need to understand this. Many of us have an exalted view of man that simply is untrue. We are not the free moral agents we want to give ourselves credit for. And when you read these passages, this is God picking up a person and using them as it pleases him, not because they're good, not because they're holy, not for any other reason than God says, I choose to do this through this person. God sovereignly does these things, sometimes whether we want it done or not. God sovereignly moves on people. He overwhelms, if you will, their will. He's God, and we're not, and he's free to do that, as he does in each of these occasions. So you've got judges where it says the Spirit of God came upon them mightily. Then they've got the power to do what God wants them to do. What about this, Numbers 24-2? Balaam is a pagan. He's a pagan. And Balak, the king of Moab, has sent his guys to go hire this pagan prophet to come and curse this nation that's impeding on his borders. He's afraid of them. He's afraid of this nation Israel that's been delivered out of Egypt and has destroyed other nations coming up to him. So he says, Balak says to Balaam, Hey, come here, I'll make you rich and wealthy. Do one thing, curse this nation. Because when you curse, they're cursed. If you bless, they're blessed. By the way, this guy Balaam, he's destroyed by Israel when they enter the land. He's killed by the Jews when they enter the land under God's judgment. He's not a great guy. There's some interesting stories tied to him. He is not a believer as far as the scriptures declare. But, Numbers 24-2, Balaam brought in to curse Israel. Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping by tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And it's through this, the Spirit of God came upon him, that Balaam, this pagan prophet, utters these prophetic utterances about Jesus. And by the way, one of his utterances, this pagan guy that speaks God's word because the Holy Spirit comes upon him. One of those utterances is the utterance that probably led those wise men from the east to follow a star to find the king who is born king of the Jews. It's Balaam that says, I see a star. I see a ruler rising in Israel. I see a star, but it's not here yet. Probably the prophecy that the wise men from the east understood when they saw this star during the period of the incarnation that led them to find Christ in Bethlehem. So here's a pagan, unbeliever, the Spirit of God comes upon him anyway, and he utters these prophetic utterances which bless and tell about Israel's future. Probably in the Old Testament, the most vivid depiction of this sense of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone the reason I said upon is a key, key term. Upon, not in. Upon, not in. Balaam, as far as we know, is not a not saved person. But the Spirit came upon him, used him, and left him. Saul and David are really key portraits, I would argue, looking back from the New Testament, of carnal people and spiritual people. And <clears throat> Israel 
under the judges decided as a nation that they wanted to be like the kingdoms around them. That meant they wanted a king. So Samuel is the last of the judges. Samuel's a prophet and a judge. And the people say to Sam, you're getting old. We don't like your sons. Give us a king. So God says, Samuel, it's okay. This is what we're going to do. So Samuel sees God's anointed one, his chosen one for this first king of Israel, and it's Saul. Now, Saul's an imposing guy. He's a head taller than everyone else in the country, and he's handsome. I mean, if you were looking for a king, Saul looks like your man. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel 10, 9, he has met Samuel, and God has told Samuel, this is the guy. So it says in verses 9 and 10, it happened when he, Saul, turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. God acted upon Saul, changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, met Saul, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. Saul's just Saul. He's never prophesied before. But he walks away, and it happens just as Samuel told him it would. The Spirit of God, Samuel said, is going to come upon you, and you'll prophesy, and it does. The Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he's with this group, and they're prophesying. They're declaring God's praise in one way or another. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he prophesies. Later on in 1 Samuel 11 at verse 6, uh, Israel's enemies, and I forget which group, come to a town and they say, Guys, surrender to us. And they say, Well, we really don't want to do that. And they say, Well, if you do, we'll only put out your right eye, but we'll let you live. And this doesn't sound very appealing either. So they say, Give us a week. If we can't raise help, we'll do it. So they send out an appeal for help. Saul hears about it. And this is where this verse says, The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. And so, empowered by the Spirit of God, he calls all Israel, and they go out, they go across the Jordan, and they take on that army, and they wipe them out. And it happened because the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. Now, if you know the story of Saul, it starts sort of well, and it doesn't end well. And it doesn't end well because Saul is this guy who never quite get, gets it spiritually. And so Samuel has told him what things are going to happen in the future. And he told, tells him, by the way, when you go to Gilgal, wait for me and I'll offer a sacrifice. And, and he doesn't wait. And he breaks God's command by offering sacrifices himself. He's not a priest. And God says, not what I was after. And he blows it again later. Anyway... Saul, this guy who was chosen by God to be king, and then he's the guy upon whom the Holy Spirit has come to empower him to deliver Israel. Listen to this, 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We read earlier, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, twice. Now we read 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is why I mean the term upon is key in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God came on him to accomplish his purposes, and the Spirit of God later left him. Was on him to do his purpose and left him. Before I go on to mention David, I want to mention this. Um, 
there's nothing, just as in nature, all of nature was ordered, the power of God's creative force in ordering nature was by the Holy Spirit. No spiritual life ever occurs apart from the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about the difference in the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we will in a minute, don't misunderstand and think that those who believe did not have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That is, we're going to say there's a distinction. We're pointing out here the Holy Spirit came on some people but didn't stay with them. That's different. What we're talking about here is is qualitatively different than a passage like uh, Genesis 15 where Abraham believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Anytime you see spiritual life occurring, Old Testament or New, it's because the Holy Spirit is involved. No one believed in either Testament apart from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who comes in to bring life. So that's true both Testaments. In these cases, though, we're talking about the Holy Spirit coming on people. This is the distinction I want to make because it also meant that he could leave them. So, the Holy Spirit had come upon Saul, and then the Holy Spirit left Saul. First Samuel 16, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, <clears throat> David, the next king, in the midst of his brothers and... The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of God came upon David from that day forward. Now, if you understand this, then Psalm 51 makes all the sense in the world. And if you don't understand this, especially as a Christian, you totally misunderstand Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a song we've sung. There's a popular, at least two, actually, melodies to Psalm 51. And part of the song from Psalm 51 says, Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David wrote this psalm. Why would he write this, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me? Remember, he's not a Christian, and he's not living in the church age. Here's a guy who had seen King Saul when the Holy Spirit was on him. And here's a guy, you remember David plays for Saul later, when the Holy Spirit was taken from him. David saw this. He knew Saul intimately, personally. He lived with him. He served him. And he knew that at one point in his life, the Holy Spirit was on Saul. And another point in his life, the Holy Spirit was not on Saul or not with him. And David's plea related to his own sin was, Lord, please, whatever you do, don't take your spirit from me. You know, however I blow it, please, please don't do to me what I saw you do to Saul where you took your spirit from him. So in the Old Testament, what you see is the Holy Spirit active in creation, the power of God to order creation of the material universe, And then typically you see the Holy Spirit coming upon people, saved and unsaved, to accomplish God's purpose at that time. The Spirit could come upon them, and the Spirit could leave them. So just summing up briefly, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit has always been present. Going back to John 7, 39, John didn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't around. The Spirit's always been present. The Spirit was the energizing force in creation. The Spirit was typically the 
the third person of the Trinity that was coming upon people in the earth to accomplish God's program at the time. Along with that, the Holy Spirit could leave them. Like the wind, the Holy Spirit would blow through and accomplish God's purpose, and then the Holy Spirit, like a wind, would be gone. And it's this thought, if you remember in John 3, when Jesus has talked to Nicodemus about being born again, Nick is saying, gosh, I don't quite get this. And Jesus sort of says, well, don't worry about it. Nick, because conversion, salvation, it's kind of like the wind. This work of the Holy Spirit is like the wind. We don't know when it's going to blow through. We don't know what direction it's going to come from. We don't know when it'll come. We don't know when it'll go. And that's what salvation is like. It's like this wind that blows through. You can't contain it. You don't control it, but it comes through and it accomplishes whatever God intended it to. When we move out of the Old Testament into the New, getting back to what does John mean then? The Spirit's not given. Okay, well, he's been around. He's been active. He's been the creative or energetic force of God to accomplish God's plan in the earth. So what does John mean? What does it mean that the Spirit will be given? Well, in John 14, this is a passage, uh, you can get a CD on it. Uh, We went through John, the Upper Room Discourse, probably a while ago, probably two or three years ago. Um, But in John 14, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is going to be crucified the next day, and so he's telling his disciples, his followers, many things. And among others, he tells them this, John 14, 16, and 17. Jesus says, guys, I'm going to ask the Father... And he's going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Remember, consider the words used here about the presence of the Spirit in contrast to the Old Testament. He'll be with you how long? Forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, it does not see him or know him. You'll know him because he abides with you. This is present tense. They're still in the Old Covenant. They're still under the Old Covenant here. And Jesus says to them, the Spirit of God has been with you. Present tense and past tense. The Spirit's been with you, and He will be future tense in you. That's the difference. The Spirit's been with you just like He's been with other Old Testament saints in the past. But there's going to be a difference. Because when I leave and I send the Spirit to come in a way He's never been in the world before, it's going to be because He will be in you. And then in Acts chapter 2, this is the birthday of the church. You remember God's work through the nation of Israel all the way up through Acts chapter 2. All the Old Testament from Abraham on is God's working through the chosen people, the the Israelites, the Jews. In Acts 2, we read, When the day of Pentecost had come, this would be 50 days after Passover, they were all, the disciples, all together in one place. And if you remember, Jesus had said when he left them, guys, the promise is going to come. That is the Holy Spirit. You wait in Jerusalem, wait for the promise, it's going to come. And that's what we're reading here in Acts 2. Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, 
this is somewhat helpful. You remember, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon them mightily. And the Hebrew word for Spirit is ruach. And it's the same word for wind or breath. And in Greek, in the language of the New Testament, the term for Spirit is pneuma. And it's the same term for breath or air. So here to these first disciples, this breath, this wind, which they understand is the term that describes the Holy Spirit, blows violently through their house. And then they see tongues of fire above each other's head, and then they are speaking in languages they had never learned. Just as those Old Testament guys prophesied, spoke God's glory here, these guys now, given the Spirit, in fact, this said, if you noticed in verse 4, filled with the Spirit. They've now become a receptacle for the Spirit. Old Testament, the Spirit was on them. Now all of a sudden it says they were filled with the Spirit. There is an Old Testament example of the same thing where it says someone was filled with the Spirit, but that's the exception, not the rule. So here's the difference. It's not on them. There's a tongue of fire on them, but the Spirit is in them, just as Jesus said. In Romans 8, verse 9, oh, and by the way, in contrast to the wind, the Old Testament sense of the wind blowing through, this time the Spirit's with them forever, as Jesus said in John 14. In Romans 8, verse 9, when Paul's developing this theology of what it means to be a Christian, he says, you're no longer controlled by your sinful nature, but by the Spirit, by God's Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And then he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Anytime a person believes in Christ, believes in Him, they are given, in the New Testament age, the Spirit. So Paul's not saying to people who've believed, you haven't arrived, you need to work harder and get the Holy Spirit. He's simply identifying those who have the Spirit or those who've believed and are saved. And if you don't have the experience of the Spirit, it's because you don't belong to Christ yet. So it's not an appeal to some higher life. It's a recognition that all who believe in the New Testament era, they get the Spirit. They get the Spirit. Some people teach that there are various classes of Christians, and some are just saved, but others are filled with the Spirit. Well, the Scriptures command Christians to be filled with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit. And we'll talk about these things next week. But every Christian has the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. How do you become a Christian? You believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul's just saying, this is the mark of a Christian. It's that they've got the Spirit. The Spirit's in them, not just on them or with them. In Ephesians 1, Paul says this. This is a different, it's not a water picture and it's not a wind picture. It's a stamp picture. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed in Him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. If you buy a house today, you put a down payment on that or a mortgage, you sign a document which says, even though you haven't paid for the whole thing, legally that property has become yours. The down payment shows that you're going to give full payment for it and the title is passed to you. 
That's somewhat the thought here. Paul says that when you believe, God puts a stamp on you. In fact, in Revelation later, in a time that we've not yet seen, it says that an angel is going to go through the earth and he's going to mark all those who believe in Christ on their forehead. Does that, that doesn't thrill most of us. If we said somebody's going to put a stamp on my head, it's like I'm a piece of meat or something, right? This would be more like an adornment, though, the thought would be, like a ring or an earring for gals, or, but it would communicate something differently. And these guys would be stamped, and it says they belong to God. That's the point. Well, that's what Paul says here in Ephesians 1. He says every person who has believed gets this stamp, this spiritual stamp put on them. And that stamp is the Holy Spirit. You and I experience this imperfectly on the earth because we're still wrapped up in a flesh and blood body. We're still tied to a sinful nature. But we have this stamp. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit which guarantees that we're going to be saved forever and we're going to experience in the future this full redemption. And God has promised it. He's guaranteed it by giving us now, His Spirit. This is a promise of better things to come. And it's the promise that we belong to Him, no question about it. He says in 1 Corinthians six 19, Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? This is the difference between what John says in John seven thirty nine. This is what Jesus was talking about, the Spirit, but the Spirit wasn't yet, or wasn't yet given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. The typical Old Testament experience, the Spirit of God blew in like a wind, came upon someone, accomplished His purpose, and blew out. And now in the New Testament, since sin has been atoned for, and Jesus sits as our representative in heaven, He's given us the Spirit now to be in us. So you and I, anyone who's believed in Christ, no less literally than the temple that sat in Jerusalem, no less than the tabernacle, that tent, in the wilderness with Israel, in which there was this golden cloud of glory sitting above the Ark of the Covenant, no less than that, the Holy Spirit resides in everyone who's believed in Christ. So that Paul says literally, it's not figurative, it's literal, you are physically, your bodies are the temple of God because the Holy Spirit is in you. That's the difference between the Old and New Testaments. The Spirit isn't blowing in our lives and blowing out. We don't have to pray Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because the Spirit in us is the stamp of God's ownership, and it's the promise that we're saved eternally, and that it's not just that we're saved for now, it's that He's going to give us full redemption when our bodies, when we will be glorified and be like Christ. So you and I live in the age that theologians call the age of the Spirit. Because the age we live in is the age that Jesus said, it'll be different. The Spirit's been with you, but now He's going to be in you. And Christians are those who enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. We are the temple of God. That's the qualitative difference that John refers to in John 7, 39, between those Old Testament saints and Christians today. And, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. You and I have, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, something that the Old Testament saints did not. 
Think about Abraham. In fact, you remember what Jesus says in the gospel? John the Baptist is the greatest person ever in the Old Testament. But he said, you know what? Compared to those that are coming, he's what? He's, he's junior. He's minor league. Why? What's the difference? It's not because we're somehow in ourselves better than John the Baptist. It's because the age he lived in was deficient compared to the age we live in. Because we live in the age in which the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up his residence in all who believe. That's the difference, and it's no small thing. You and I, we have an inheritance in Christ now in the presence of the Holy Spirit that the greatest saint in the Old Testament didn't have. And when the Holy Spirit comes in us, he comes in us to stay. He doesn't, like Saul, blow in and blow out. When he blew in there on that day of Pentecost, he filled them. And that's what he's still doing to us today. We'll talk next week about more of the experience. So what does that mean? What does it look like? And why aren't I any better? If all this is true, why don't I experience more? Or how do I, how do I experience more of this gift, this glorious gift of God present in me by his Holy Spirit? We'll look at that next week. But take this thought home with you. You and I live in an age in which we can relish the thought. We can be assured in the thought that having believed in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And he's in us to teach us and to guide us, to comfort us. He's in us to transform us. He is the power of God to bring that conformity of image Jesus talked about so that we'll look more and more like him. We don't do that on our own steam or our own power. He's in us to accomplish God's work. Not on us, but he's in us. That's all the better for you and for I. So take that home. Think about that. Thank God that you live in the age of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that because Jesus atoned for our sins, rose from the dead, and sits at your right hand, you were free to pour out your Holy Spirit. Lord, there's no sin issue between you and us now because of Christ's death on our behalf. And Lord, my prayer is simply this, that you would help all of us to fully experience the power and the blessing you intend in the fact that your Spirit is present in us, that his power would be at work in each one of us, that you would illuminate the eyes of our heart, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 and 3, so that we can comprehend, so that we can understand the value of knowing you. Lord, the truth is, every people in every age have not lived up to the blessings you've given, and we don't either. But we pray that you will overwhelm our sinful tendencies, and you will glorify yourself as your spirit transforms sinners like us into those godly, holy ones that you've redeemed us to be. Thanks, Lord, that we live in the age of your spirit at the expense of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.